This is the Gear Patrol podcast for Friday, December 17th, 2021. I'm Nick Caruso, and I'm glad you're here because this week we're discussing the future of smart home tech, thanks to a new standard called Matter that allegedly, or does promise, to allegedly uh, unite all your disparate smart home devices under one virtual roof. Sounds like a pipe dream. Could be. We'll talk about it. Then we'll talk about where your wool is coming from. Luxury textile and clothing maker Loro Piana and many other similar brands are leaning into a new trend, which is tracking the production of wool goods all the way back to the sheep whose haircut provided the raw materials in the first place. We'll talk about that, reactions to it, and whether it's going to be a bigger thing. Might be. And then lastly, in headlines, John Mayer and Casio teamed up on yet another G-Shock watch collaboration. It's unfortunately already sold out, but we'll talk about our thoughts on the design, thoughts on other such collabs, and thoughts on the future of John Mayer's influence on the watch world. Uh, and then we'll finish up with a quick lightning round of our favorite new gear from the past week. With me for this episode is Associate Director of Production Design, Henry Phillips, back on the pod after a short hiatus. Hey, Henry. Great to be back. Yeah, we're glad to have you back. It's like, uh, it's like, a, like a victory tour for a, an old, worn-out band. Um. Anyway, hi. And also Platforms Editor, J.D. DiGiovanni. Uh, he's on the horn from sunny California, or I assume sunny. You're inside. How's life, J.D.? Yeah, I, I'm, I, it may or may not be. I'm, I'm just so preoccupied with thinking of Henry is old and worn out. Um, I'm, I'm appreciating that that awesome burn on uh, our, our, our coworker here. <laughs> yeah, you're like, uh, you're like, but like Mick Jagger level. Like Mick Jagger is 80. But he can still hop around a little bit, so that's that's the best of both worlds for you, Henry. Um, the holiday season is in deep swing, and unfortunately, a COVID is rearing its ugly head again with a surging variant. So I hope everyone is healthy and safe. It can be really tough to make decisions about uh, holiday travel and traditions in the wake of all this crap. So please just be careful. Um, I also want to note for listeners that we will not be publishing a new podcast episode next week since our schedules are cramped with Christmas time off and all that good stuff. So savor this one while it lasts. Uh, and speaking of the holidays, uh, guys, I'm not finished with my holiday shopping and um, that's my MO, but it's still embarrassing. Are you guys good at proactive gift buying? Generally, yeah. Um, but I, I always feel like, I don't know, there's a part of me that is very fond of brick and mortar, uh, stores and I, I'll always do like an initial pass online and then do the final pass in person at, in all the shops in kind of my hometown. So that's still pending. Uh, so I'm technically not done, but, uh, you know, it's a little mix. I'm terrible with proactive gift giving. I just like, Maybe some years, the occasional year, it'll all kind of come together and I'll be done by, you know, December 1st. But this year, uh, I'm, let's call it halfway done. Okay. Halfway done. We'll take Which, 50%. There's some time still for sure. Um, I wanted to get a shipping container for someone, but that seems to be hard to come by these days. Yeah. Sorry. That's a bummer. So what are you going to do? You know, 
Uh, yeah, I always dream. I have this dream every year, which feels like a very adult thing. So I guess maybe I finally made it. But like, I'm like, I'll just buy gifts throughout the year and I'll have them ready. And then it'll be no November way. and I'll wrap them and then just bring them to people. And that's never going to happen ever. That'll never happen. Um, but if there's anyone like us who is still shopping around or needs some ideas, we're gonna uh, I'm gonna drop a link to Gear Patrol's gift guides in the show notes. Uh, tons of ideas, even if you're kind of late to the game. Um, a lot of options there. I know I'm going to be perusing them quite a bit, probably immediately after we stop recording. Um, but enough of that. But also sort of on a similar vein, our first story is about smart home products. Um, I say similar vein or relevant because I've been trying to set up my parents with various gadgets that'll, you know, help them out like automated lighting and power and, uh, like security stuff and thermostats, but it's tough to get all one brand of stuff. Uh, and worse yet, when you have several brands mixed up, it's a headache to like coordinate and control them all, uh, smoothly, certainly not in one place. Um, and The Verge has been leaning heavy into reporting this sort of new, on this new tech called Matter uh, that is, quote, developed by Amazon, Apple, Google, and Nest, and Samsung, alongside many other smart home and smart home adjacent companies, including Wise, iRobot, Signify, which is Philips Hue, Ecobee, and more, end of quote. So Matter is this sort of like communications protocol or, you know, some, something along those lines that will allegedly make it easy to weave together multiple smart home brands and devices. So using this uses tech that already exists, um, your Wi-Fi connection, your Bluetooth, all that stuff to just kind of make everything talk to each other with no cloud, no internet connection needed. Um, and to date, what we call walled gardens around individual companies' tech have made this impossible. Um, Apple's famous for this. Walled garden, you can't really use other stuff with their stuff. Uh, and that, in turn, has slowed the uptake of smart home integration. It's everywhere, but it's not very cohesive. So matter is like shared infrastructure, like the federal highway system where every model of brand of car can run on it. Anyway, this is supposed to be up and running by the end of 22. It's faced a little bit of delays. Henry, I'm going to go to you first to get you back into the swing of the pod. Do you Are you familiar with the sort of trials and tribulations of smart home device potpourri issues? Thankfully, uh, not as familiar as I imagine many uh, kind of homeowners who have tried to make the, the big smart switch are. You know, I've got my three or four smart light bulbs. Uh, yeah. and somehow, uh, both Google home and a hope, an Apple home pod. Um, and they all seem to vaguely play together. Um, you know, that's, uh, it's using a Wi-Fi standard. So it's using like a little hub dock that's uh, connected to my Wi-Fi router, mm -hmm. um, which is not exactly elegant, but is what it is. Um, but I think part of the reason I'm so kind of like, afraid of diving further into the, uh, into the smart home world is, is not only do I live in like an 800 square foot apartment, um, but, 
but it is really intimidating. There's just too, there's so much and there's so many brands and standards and, you know, will this work with this work with this? And, um, I can only imagine trying to do a house with more than five light bulbs, uh, and the just misery that must come with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, we're all three of us in similar boats, right? We have small dwellings. Um, and like you said, I've actually commented to my, commented to my mom and several other people, mom, cause we had family moving around recently. It was like, I don't understand how people have big homes and like furnish them. Like you have many couches. That's weird. And the same applies to, to tech, uh, I have a few bulbs and can't imagine more. JD, what about you? Are you a smart homer? Yeah, well, unlike Henry, my uh, my concern about smart home equipment stems more from the Disney Channel original movie, Smart House, than it does um, any kind of issues with integration or wall gardens. Um, great flick. Uh, no, but actually, uh, yeah, I mean, look, same same thing. I live in a studio apartment. I have no couches. I think I know people who have homes with three couches. Uh, couches. And yeah, I have probably like, I don't know, three light bulbs. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to that, that, that uh, you know, uh, big coastal city media bias thing there, I think that I'm, I'm definitely guilty of not actually partaking in it. I do think it's interesting, though. I think this story is really compelling to me because it it's a reminder of the extent to which you know, technology does not exist or and is not developed kind of in a vacuum, right? It's at the core of it, there are, there are people in competing interests. And I think what's really interesting to me about this kind of goal with this, with this, um, this setup here, this uh, matter, is that it seems like a bunch of different companies are trying to come together and transcend that, transcend the kind of narrow interest they all have in the short term to kind of be dominant in the market and actually create a standard in which everyone can play. Um, I, I think most people who seem to follow tech and consumer technology more closely seem to be kind of skeptical of that. Um, I don't, and I'm generally speaking, I just love it when people get along. So I'm really hopeful and rooting <laughs> it on. But who's to say, who's to say whether, whether it'll work or not? I, I definitely do think that... Um, you know, it'd be interesting to, to see if uh, the world of tech, which has been accused of kind of pretty often just like dominating something and never actually kind of living with multiple folks, which is why, or multiple different kind of competitors, which is why these issues around monopolies become a big thing up to the point mm-hmm. where, you know, the federal government's considering pretty strict regulation of certain companies. Um, I wonder if this could be like a bellwether and, and, and help. I don't know, lead the way in terms of thinking about how companies can actually like set a kind of standard and allow for more than one other person in a room. But we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, this, this is almost, I mean, we don't need to go down like a, a political conversation at all with this, but like, it does almost seem like something that the government has to enact, right? This is infrastructure. Um, it, it seems like that big of, I should say, it seems like that big of a, uh, a project that it almost seems like on the scale of a, a federal government. I don't mean that the federal government should do this. Um, but that is to say, yes, this is like the uptake of tech more and more is relying on infrastructure that just doesn't exist. I'm thinking of like EV charging networks like just don't exist. So it's hard for EV 
culture to really take off. Um, what do you think? What do you guys think about how smooth this would be? Like you're saying, it, JD, it's like an ideal future state. Uh, it makes sense. It's reasonable in many aspects, but like also. Eric Limer, our tech editor, brought up the fact he was like, I can't see Apple being really super jazzed about making it easy for Amazon's devices to work with theirs. Yeah. So what do you guys think? You wonder. I mean, in a sense, like it's hard for me not to compare this to to like the real kind of bread and butter standards that we all live with day to day, like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. You Mm -hmm. know, those are standards that were arrived at by like weird nonprofit consortia um, that just feels like, you know, it was in a hollowed out volcano or something, but, um, but yeah, I think With a lot right. of smart you know, light bulbs and couches probably. <laughs> exactly. Like these companies are willing to give up this kind of short term idea maybe of like, you know, I, I need to sell more, more home pods than, than echoes. But I think, hopefully they're all hoping that you know the more people who get enticed by the idea of smart home infrastructure because it is the kind of one major hurdle is overcome the idea that you know you can't connect these things with that thing um then maybe you know it it creates a playing field where brands can kind of compete on their own merit rather than having to deal with like oh i'm stuck in this one um and it just i mean it seems to like it'll massively benefit consumers. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, yeah. You know, hopefully by the time matters put together, I'll I, have another light bulb or two. I do. Yeah. Um, I, I do wonder, I guess the theory behind this is that, okay. One of the impediments towards broader adoption is the fact that these things aren't talking to one another. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably true, but you know, it'd be interesting to see after this actually happens, right? Because um, I'm not an adopter of this technology, as kind of said earlier. If it still just doesn't become a thing mm-hmm. <laughs> more broadly, I, I think there are real savings um, to be had in like kind of energy. Um, you can save um, on your kind of electricity bills. You can, I know there's some kind of uh, tricky ways you can set up water meters so you can have a better idea of like how much you're actually using and you can be more conscious about your spending. I think that stuff makes sense, but a lot of ways the benefit of these things seems to be like you don't have to walk around in your house and flipping switches you can do with your phone. And that benefit to me is kind of narrow (laughs) and and maybe a little, maybe a little superficial where it's like, okay, neat. I can do it with my phone, but look, it's not that big of a deal for me to go walk into a room. I forgot to turn the light off in and just go do that myself. Um, Maybe I'm being too uh, negative about the kind of benefits this technology has to offer, but it does feel in a lot of ways that like we get to a point with the development of tech and consumer technology and services too. think about like food delivery, ride hailing apps, or like um, uh, uh, grocery delivery. It's just like, why do I need my groceries in 15 minutes? Like, I guess it'd be nice, but do I really need it that quickly? Like, are we... (laughs) At what point is there like serious diminishing returns when it comes to optimization? Um, and I guess that's my the heart of my question about smart home adoption is that whether or not the benefit is really there and enough and enough for folks to spend more on a light bulb or to 
worry about trying to like sync up an app with their sync. Yeah, that, that's a. Do you mean a like a sync with water? A smart <laughs> sync. Yeah. Um, that was nice. Okay. That was a clever bit of. Uh, you know, it was there at the very end. It was a button. Um, yeah, I think that that brings up the question: like, what? It's interesting to consider like the different use cases for smart home stuff, right? So, like, if it truly is just that you have ten rooms in your house and you want to be able to turn on the lights, that seems like a light switch problem. And that, well, there are stuff in in readily you can buy all sorts of light switches and they all work with each other already because they use wires. Um, but if you want to do something like uh, like if you have tunable white lights and you want it to do something different in the morning versus the evening, or you want to do like a music sort of like home speaker setup or whatever, or maybe you have multiple syncs and you want them all to sync up. I don't know. I couldn't do it as well as you, JD. Um, you know, there are different people I could see using using this kind of stuff for a lot of different stuff. So it kind of depends on like how hard into smart home you are. Um, I think this like light adopters probably don't care, not light bulb adopters, but like LIT uh, uh, diet adopters, diet smart home might not need this kind of stuff as much as people who just go ham, um, which is uh, the Disney movie. Could have could have done well with matter. Um, I don't know any other. This so this is about a year away. We think, uh, Henry. What do you think? Any last words on this? Like use cases. Like who's who's this going to be for? Is it actually going to work for them? I think so. I mean, it, it seems like there's there's very little like kind of downside to come of this, other than it may get slowed down by a bunch of kind of intercompany bickering um but no, i mean like if you were to renovate a home or, or build out a new house i think people would seriously consider you know if you're not going to go like full you know attacking virtual assistant but maybe maybe the blinds are automated or your sprinkler system or something and it's it could be all number of or like locks, locks and cameras. Those those seem like they're getting a lot more pickup than uh, than maybe the kind of more esoteric stuff. Locks, pickup, uh, thermostats, stuff like that. Um, you know, if you're gonna buy a new one or install a new one, sure, there's convenience to be had and and being able to control with an app or set schedules and stuff. So I could see it just be kind of becoming kind of a slow and steady adoption with maybe like some notable exceptions that just never become smart because the smart versions suck. Like uh, sinks? Like sinks or light bulbs. Uh, there is, I'm sure there's a smart sink that I can voice control to begin, and I never want a part of that. Yeah, like you can like yell from, I could yell from here to turn on my kitchen sink. <laughs> you have to walk over to the sink and wash your fucking hands. <laughs> my, my landlord replaced my sink uh, my my faucet with um, a smart faucet. It's oh, a yeah. raised touch faucet. Yeah, so oh you God. touch it, it'll start, and if you touch it again, it won't. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's the most atrocious thing I've ever used in my entire life. Usability is terrible. I'll be like washing the the, the, the dishes, and I'll like bump it by accident, and it'll turn off. Yeah, it'll turn off randomly when it's on. 
it's just like it's the perfect example of me of like over optimizing something that's already great yeah same there's a faucet you, you twist it it's on you twist it the other way it's off man oh man isn't that great you know <laughs> yeah we kind of already peaked in terms yeah. of faucet tech and <laughs> wheels are really good at rolling you don't got yeah, anything right. more but imagine if they were you could like roll them with your voice what uh, if we what if we made you pay more to have it do the same thing but worse yeah a friends of mine have a one of those touch faucets that actually glows blue when it's cold and red when it's hot and I think like we have it, the same faucet there's like a mix like a purple area in the middle yeah Oh, it's like what I went over there. I was like, "What the hell is this? Can't you? If there's an easy way to tell if it's cold water, you know, um, you put someone else's hand under it." Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we're we're getting off the rails, but I I am sort of realizing finally that I I do want a fully automated home. I'm I'm picturing this. Make a Disney movie about me if you want, but like I do want to be able to just like think about my bedroom lights coming on and they they do it. I just want you know semi automatic home. <laughs> like a like a, <laughs> a single action home. Yeah, exactly. you got to get a license for that in New York, dude. Bob stock <laughs> home. Uh, okay, well, see, this is why we can edit stuff. None of us can air. Um, well, okay, so we'll have to wait with bated breath for matter to come along and uh, deal with our our sinks with our dumb analog hands in the meantime. Uh, and uh, we'll probably have to revisit this in a year or so when I am when I can automate a podcast from my I don't know from the shower. No, we don't need a shower podcast. Let's move on uh, before this gets bad. The second story we have is from the Times of New York, uh, the storied institution of editorial success. It outlines what seems to be, I think, I think personally, a mini trend, if not a whole new sort of product paradigm uh, on the horizon, which is tracking the origin and production and supply chain, everything, delivery, whatever, of individual garments. So in this case, the story from the Times, specifically wool clothing by the luxury brand Loro Piana. Um, many, many other brands, specifically in the wool space, which is a phrase I've never used before, wool space, uh, have taken on this kind of thing lately, uh, too. I think that's largely due to how sort of like uh, sort of like cute it is to think about the sheep that gave their their wool for your shirt. Um, but the way this works varies. There are some uh, brands who have literally sewn tags into like the tag in your garment. Uh, that identify what sheep, what bale of wool, what farm, uh, et cetera, serviced as the source for the, the materials. Others are using blockchain apps so that the actual herders can trace wool um, that their sheep are producing and like what ends up happening to it. Uh, and then still others, there's, a, there's this brand um, I've seen a lot called Sheep Inc. Uh, have actual plastic 
ish tags, like round tags embedded into the garment so owners can swipe their smartphone and track the origin of their cardigan or whatever. Um, so there's a lot here and it seems to be a spreading trend uh, from my POV. So I'm um, gonna go to JD. Uh, does the idea of tracking the origin you know, and progeny of individual garments or maybe even other products appeal to you? Is this a viable thing that we're talking about? I get the impulse. You know, I, I think that um, the fashion industry is pretty um, pretty often talked about. It's pretty well documented, you know, how um, wasteful the industry can be, how abusive mm -hmm. it can be when it comes to labor practices. Um, you know, we live in this global economy and it's really difficult to track where stuff's made, um, how it's produced, who's producing it, whether or not they have like decent living conditions and working conditions. Um, and I think that the attempt to build some sort of way of tracking it and using it as a, um, a kind of selling point doesn't seem bad to me. I, I think it's, it's good that folks are, are willing to, that, it, there should be a profit motive for um, companies to say we're doing things above board and we can prove it. Um, for sure. How effective that's going to be, I think, is probably going to be in the details about how how it's actually produced. I, I don't know enough about blockchain technology to like say whether or not this, that, or the other strategy that's being used is going to be effective or can be cheated. But this is the kind of tricky part about whenever you have a kind of selling point. When it, this happens a lot with organic. Or, um, or like carbon neutral or carbon negative products is that a lot of, there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think as, if this becomes a more common um, kind of strategy for clothing manufacturers to kind of um, talk about that they can trace the, their products from origin, from the source, um, you know, I, I think you'd, you'd be silly to think that you wouldn't come across a bunch of fakes uh, who are trying to do the same thing. So, it, so that, I don't know. That's, that's just kind of my take on it, I guess, is that it, it, it seems like a positive step. It seems like it's coming from the right place. It, but uh, how effective it's going to be, I think we may just have to wait and see. I, I don't know. Yeah, and obviously like this kind of information is built in. I guess that's kind of what I meant to allude to when I was talking about how cute sheep are. But like this kind of this kind of uh, desire for information tracks very one-to-one -one with the, the fashion industry and, and clothing, particularly because it's like a, a, a product or a, a, a material that is grown, sourced, tracked, used in very specific ways. And it's, it's not uh, very complex. Whereas something like the steel that was rolled for my hydro flask, cup here it is a different story um i also don't really care where that steel came from uh i don't care about i don't think mines or mines are cute um henry what do you think pros cons interests not interesting yeah i mean i think the the cynic in me thinks of this as a really great way to make sustainability uh really like nicely marketable for luxury brands um mm -hmm. You know, if you can, if you as Laura Piana can say like, hey, look at this, this Mongolian shepherd and this exact sheep who is 
you know, thriving in his rolling hills uh, and has provided your $4,500 sweater. Um, you know, if you can tell that story, that's that's a great kind of like thing to then pass on to your customers who can tell their insufferable story about where their sweater came from. Um, that's exactly it. <laughs> like that's, that's cool. Uh, and I do think like the core kind of premise behind it, this idea of like accountability at a really like micro level is, is awesome. Um, because like, yeah, sure. It's, it's, you know, you had the sense that if Laura Piano was selling a $5,000 sweater, that it was probably like done the right way. Um, but, it's nice to like be a little bit more sure of that. You know, I think it would be hard to see like Zara doing this anytime soon. Um, I, th I think that might, uh, you know, they might realize that they don't want to and then find no need to, but if people start to demand it, if people like want this kind of radical transparency, then, then I think that'd be amazing. Um, I think, we've seen like hints of this in a much kind of like broader sense from brands like Everlane who were really transparent about like, here's what it costs. And they, they kind of ran into some trouble because they would tell you like cities, but then they would always refuse to disclose factories. Uh, so like things got a little weird there. Um, but the idea that like sustainability is a marketable trait, um, is obviously nothing new. Uh, but to be able to kind of take that a step further is really, is cool. And I have absolutely no idea how this integrates with the blockchain. Um, I, I mean, even going to spare uh, everybody like jokes kind of around that topic um, and just say that, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, you know, exactly the same kind of conclusion as JD where I'm, I'm excited for, for the kind of like positive potential and maybe wary of the hokiness that could come with. It's, it's definitely gonna be super easy to make fun of, you know? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the whole farm to table stuff was still new and, and there are these jokes about how it's like, you know, you're at a restaurant before you yeah. kind of tuck into your plate and you're like, what was his name? What was, <laughs> what was the animal's name? I want to know, like, what was his favorite the best color? Part is, yeah. <laughs> right? right. Um, there's something that's super precious about it. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, this is the tricky thing about all this stuff is that the, the, the goal is totally, um, totally above board to, to like want to have a more ethical way of consuming, but it can be turned into this thing where it's sure it's about ethical consumption, but effectively and in practice, it's just another status symbol mm -hmm. that can be, um, kind of lorded over or shown to be kind of some evidence of your own piety. Um, so I, I'm, yeah, I mean, one would hope that whatever trend this is, it would not be relegated just to uh, brands like, um, like this one we're talking about that could be The Gap, right? Um, right. Or it could be Zara. Um, probably won't ever be Zara, <laughs> but um, they seem pretty content with their uh, moral ambiguity. But uh, everything else, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I have written here um, – you know, I tend to always analyze this stuff from a kind of a, sick, a cynical point of view. Um, but I have written here, is this virtue signaling? Is it just luxury bragging rights? And that does kind of tie back to a half joke I made in some notes to you guys, I guess, yesterday um, about the story. 
And the question I wrote to you is, is do we think Kendall Roy cares about the name of the goat that provided the wool for his polo shirt? And I say that because Laurel Piana is who the wardrobe people for succession used for a lot of his clothing. Um, but I think the answer to that question is, no, he doesn't care, but yeah, he's going to tell you like, <laughs> that's, the, that's the person who will corner you and be like, yeah, you know, I really like this suit. It's uh Vicky from the Mongolia, uh, gave it's, you know, second month, whatever the hell. And, um, that's annoying. It is kind of fun though. So the other end of that spectrum is something like, you know, Mercedes AMG uses hand-built engines in their cars and famously on every one of them the person who did like built your car one man one engine is their thing the one who built the engine for your car signs it on a elect on a metal plaque so it's like yeah this is my e 63 AMG wagon, whatever. And Hans Gruber, (laughs) you know, was the, was the mechanic who finished it. That's, I don't know. Maybe this is my car bias, but I think that's really cool. Not everyone would. If I told that to my girlfriend, she'd be like, that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. Like that doesn't matter. So I don't know. It could be, if it's used for like, true virtue this is a cool thing if not if it's just bragging rights that's dumb that's too bad i remember i actually it was you and me nick who visited the uh that engine plant in in uh falterbach uh, that's right amg and they would say that people would come visit uh visit the factory and try and meet the people who made that they made their engine uh yeah and i i hope that that becomes a thing with laura piana and and sheep uh (laughs) You know, you get this tourist industry into Mongolia uh, as people who are immaculately dressed try and track down, like, the sheep that provided the, the wool for their sweater. Sounds like a movie pitch, man. God, it's also... Mongolia is coming. It also sounds like those programs where you can, like, adopt a cow <laughs> somewhere or whatever. Um, Sally Struthers. Adopt on the condition of being able to use its skin for something. <laughs> yeah, this is Bessie, my, the cow I adopted five years ago. She will be a jacket soon <laughs> um, <clears throat> that I'll give to my kids. Okay, well, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, we can all pool our money for a Laura Piana polo shirt and brag about it someday. Uh, but the last major story we're going to talk about this week... Um, is a different kind of bragging, right? But along the same lines, I suppose, uh, if you're a lucky customer, it's about John Mayer's latest G-Shock wristwatch collaboration with Hodinkee. It's the Casio G-Shock reference 6900 PT80, a familiar silhouette to G-Shock connoisseurs. And John Mayer is, of course, a musician. Uh, He's done a collaboration like this before, Last year, he was behind uh, a G-Shock collab um, whose design was based on a vintage Casio keyboard. And this year is the same story. Different keyboard, though. It is based on a Casio PT-80, hence the name of the uh, watch, which is a keyboard from the mid-80s. So more or less 
the me of keyboards. I actually wrote that joke out for you guys. Um, the watch is an off-white color. It's kind of like the um, cases on monitors and, and computers of, of desktop computers of that vintage. Um, some of the colors surrounding the portions of the dial and the color of some of the text graphics are lifted directly off that original keyboard as well. Um, this is a $180 watch. And like I mentioned, way up top, it's already sold out because it was a limited run. Henry, did you get a John Mayer watch? I did not. Should I have no? gotten one? Okay. I don't know. You tell me. What do you think about it? I, it's cool. I like it. I, I never quite got around to like big chunky G-Shock thing. Um, mm. You know, and I, I, I like Mr. Mayer's music, uh, but you know, not. <laughs> You know, it's it's cool. I it is cool, and I appreciate that. Like, these watch brands are kind of finding different sources of inspiration, uh, and it's fun to realize that Casio. You know, you can reference a Casio keyboard for a Casio watch, and I hope that there's like a Yamaha piano motorcycle thing coming down the line. But <laughs> but it's cool, and I, I like it, and I, I kind of like the visual style, and I can always get down with like some off white things. Um, but but no, I did not snag one, and uh, you know I don't feel too much regret. Okay, JD, did you get, end up with one? And if not, are you regretting it? Yeah, I uh, I am not allowed to buy more watches. It's against the rules for me. Um, but man, oh man, would I have bought this if uh, I had uh, less self control? I think it's really cool. Okay. I and in general, I just I I really like this more accessible type of watch being hyped. I, I think that, you know, the advent of like watch Instagram and watch publications with very good taste and very good shots have just, you know, really broadened the appeal of like men's wrist watches over the past like five, 10 years. And so much of the watch market when it comes to the publications in general and the stuff that people really lust after it's just super expensive stuff, you know? It's mm. just, it's, it is inaccessible for the majority of people on the planet, you know? Um, but having someone who appreciates great watchmaking like John Mayer does, um, he's been on a handful of, he has quite the watch collection for listeners who don't know, and he's kind of fancied himself a collector for a long time. Um, but having someone with that level of taste bring that kind of love of this type of kind of uh, accessory essentially um, to a broader uh, group of people, um, I think it's great. And, and it's something I really hope to see more of because yeah, you can like it or not like it. But one thing you got to say when you're looking at this watch is that it's, it's a considered, it's con like, it's, it's well considered watch. Like it, 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 it looks, I think attractive to my eye. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's great. You know, it's just, I guess long story short, my take here is that John Mayer is helping democratize the love of watches. And, uh, you know, it's just another reason to love him. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a John Mayer fanboy, man. It's ridiculous. I think he's great. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that should have been my first question. Yeah, um, man, he's cool. <laughs> um, he's yeah, he's cool. I mean, he's also just like a sick musician. He can shred a guitar like, yeah, man. like a god. Um yeah, I'm kind of on the fence about the the style here, but I can fully appreciate it. Um, 
I um I also think it's funny, like on the G Shock website, there was a limit of one per household. And it said <laughs> that on the product page in bright red letters, which is really funny. Um I this this reminds me of other similar collaborations that um as I'm sure it does you both, but I'm kind of a sucker for like the NASA branded Timex watches that have come out and, and other stuff. And, but I'm not sure I could actually buy or wear one. Like it's, I really love them, but I'm not sure I could do it. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the middle of you two. Henry, is that how you feel? Or do you, are you just like opposed to, I like, I I don't think I'm like opposed to the idea of a a collaboration watch. I like the idea of a collaboration watch. I think Uh, I'm trying to think of any that have like really like struck me. Um, You know, I like the ones where it's, even if it's like a made up story about how the brands work together, together to like create a functional thing. <laughs> like I don't I, real or not, it doesn't matter to me, but like, you know, Tudor came out with this one recently that was for like the French Navy and the French Navy has like digital watches and iPhones and stuff. But, uh, but you know, it's a nice story and, and I desperately want one. Um, but yeah, you know, I like the like NASA ones. Yeah. I, I have one watch and it's a Speedmaster because because of Buzz Aldrin wearing it like, you know, a few miles away. Um like <laughs> that's the reason you like it is because it's got this kind of built-in it's a let's let's call it a collaboration. It says space on it. Um So yeah, I think like the nature of collaboration in watches is is alive and well and it's cool to see it coming from other sources and and kind of feeling like really community-based in a lot of ways you know like the reason that casio is tapping g-shock and the reason that or sorry that casio is tapping hodinky and that hodinky is tapping john mayer is this like weird community-based um you know like you're tapping the people who are on the inside and and uh and kind of creating something that is like very insidery but also you know like jd said it's a you know 200 dollars watch that if you really, really want, you can get right now for $400. Um, that isn't like some sort of like $90,000 or six and a half million dollar collaboration that is complete unobtainium. So yeah, I mean, it feels a lot like sneakers in a good way. Yeah. yeah like the, um, unobtainium, like the, uh, God, what did Jay-Z was just photographed with that Tiffany and Paddock. Is uh, it Paddock? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is definitely on the other end of that spectrum. Um, but that's a great point about the price too, is like the accessibility of like hype culture is pretty cool. And frankly, G-Shocks are great watches too. I have a couple. Um, it is kind of a bummer. Like we're up to wait and see, I guess, but to your point, Henry, so it's like a blending of points from both of you it's like very accessible but because these are limited edition they're already going to be bought up and resold for a ton of money which is kind of a bummer but hopefully more people than not you know hold on to them and enjoy them the way jd couldn't i i think (laughs) i think even if you can't get this watch for msrp there's something there's some signaling that does go on when Hodinky and John Mayer are like, this G-Shock is cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just, in general, it's just like, 
listen, like it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be super expensive to be cool. You know, yeah. it's just, you gotta have to find the thing that works for you and, and, and fits and feels right. And I think that that's enough. It doesn't have to be expensive. And that, I think that that's like the message to me that's at, at the core of a collaboration like this. And, and that's something I appreciate because yeah, man, Timex's they're great. G-Shock's perfect. Like, let's mm-hmm. go. Best watch collaboration, in my opinion, still Mickey Mouse on a Timex dude. Hell yeah. Yeah, <laughs> those, yeah, those pointing Nothing arms. can beat that. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. No, I always love when a, a brand or like a, an, an outlet like, like Gear Patrol, whomever, um, endorse a pretty common or like accessible product. It's just, I'm like, it's very relatable for one, but it's also just like, yeah, uh, of course I like this, you know, $10 spatula. It is perfect. Yeah. So, and, and for what it's worth, uh, a small shout out to the folks at Hodinkee. Um, I think for a long, long time, they did a lot of collaborations that were, uh, hilariously over, like not overpriced, but on the expensive end of collectible limited edition watchmaking, you know, there were $30,000 and $60,000 watches and, and they've done some really amazing stuff with Swatch, um, and with Casio to create like really fun watches where you can kind of get into that idea of like there are a limited number of these things. Uh, I think they did one with Hamilton very recently. I know someone else um, who did. Yeah. At, um, well, they learned from Gear Patrol about Hamilton, obviously. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like the idea that, you know, you can create this, this kind of hype limited edition watches with the same kind of consideration that they always use. Like, you know, there's there's a lot going on here, and and that's always been the case with with Hodinkee stuff um, when they start working with watchmakers. So, uh, yeah, huge props and more two hundred dollars stuff. Yeah, I'm into it. You hear that, John? I know you're listening. Um, cool. Yeah, good takes all around. I approve of all of this. We're gonna we're gonna leave all of them in. Uh, but that is it for the main headlines this week. So let's quickly turn to um, a newer segment we've been doing. Um, our favorite product drops of the past week. We publish Gear Patrol. We, Gear Patrol, publish a daily column called Today in Gear that features a handful of these, these quick hit product news uh, items, uh, new releases, updates, and there's a lot to love. So um, this is where we have a chance to quickly surface a few. JD, you want to start with us? What what new gears on your radar right now? Yeah, totally. Um, so I'm actually back in my hometown of Chico, California, which is where, as I told everyone I knew as soon as I left my hometown, is where Sierra Nevada is brewed. Um, told them that half out of pride, half out of some attempt to locate my uh, my upbringing in some broader cultural context. Anyway. Um, this uh, this great brewery, um, Sierra Nevada, has gone ahead and collaborated with a whiskey maker out of Alameda um, to do a fun, ruthless uh, take on their ruthless rye beer uh, made of whiskey. Um, it was I think they bought they like put them in barrels in like 2013, and so now eight years later, um, it's finally coming out. Um, I am trying to deputize my brother to go pick them up. Um, they're <laughs> 
they're releasing at this uh, at the factory in Alameda in, on Saturday, uh, um, uh, this coming Saturday um, at 11 a.m. Um, probably shouldn't say that if I won't have a chance at actually getting a bottle, um, but they're going for 75 bucks and uh, looks great. I don't know. I just uh, it's it's always fun to see a kind of maker uh, that you're really a big fan of trying something else with a, a brand or another maker of the space that like knows what they're doing um, and to kind of see if you can't identify or locate some element of what it is you love about, I don't know, Sierra Nevada in something that like whiskey. So yeah, that's, uh, that's one. Kind of... Yeah. I like that. Um, my little hometown pride. And uh, if anybody wants to uh, pay, JD, a huge premium. He'll deputize his brother to try to find you a bottle, too. Um, just skim a little off the top. Uh, yeah, love love some whiskey. Henry, what are you jonesing for right now? What's on your radar? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a week of collaborations, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. My... My pick of this year's kind of or this week's gear uh, is this espresso machine that is being done in collaboration uh, between Rafa and this company called Rocket Espresso, uh, a relatively young espresso machine company uh, from 2007 uh, that was kind of always intertwined with the world of cycling. Um, Their founders are this guy from New Zealand and an Italian who are both kind of big cyclists, and they've always had sponsorships and kind of weird integrations with the cycling world. Um, So it's only natural that they would produce a $3,700 espresso machine (laughs) in collaboration with uh, Rafa, the perennial cool kids of cycling clothing. Um, And it's, it's really rad looking. It's this kind of matte black steel with these off-white dials and these pink indicators um and it's a limited run of 100 um it will surely make really excellent espresso um and the only kind of gotcha aside from the fact that it's many thousands of dollars uh is that you have to be a member of the rcc or rafa cycling club um which is kind of like a costco for cycling uh you know you got (laughs) to spend a hundred dollars but you get all sorts of cool access and uh the ability to purchase really awesome espresso machines yeah this thing is really pretty i mean it is all the details i love rafa the pink the pink details they put on their uh their duds and i love seeing that kind of thing carry on here so yeah it's interesting you you bring up another collaboration like we're kind of like all over the map about how we feel about them but this is it's pretty. So pretty. I'm not I'm not a biking Costco member, unfortunately. There's still time. I'm there surely is. not sold out yet. Yeah, I don't know. You think John Mayer has one? Um guys, I found a, a thing too I want to talk to you about. Um and it it's not a collaboration, so I'm sorry, but it is hometown adjacent and uh timekeeping adjacent. It is Depending who you are, you pronounce this differently, Shinola, Shinola. Uh, but they have a new chronograph called the Canfield Speedway. And it's a pretty looking little, little watch here. Um, it's blacked out mostly. It's 44 millimeter, so it's huge. Um, it's an automatic, of course. It has the tachymeter, uh, this coin edge around the bezel. Um, and little 
tiny little color details, kind of like the espresso machine. Um, straight up automotive inspiration, right? It's an homage to racing. That's what this kind of thing is used for. But uh, Shinola is a Detroit company, and I'm a proud-ass Michigander. So, like, put all these things together, and, and I'm into it. Um, it's a... And that's even though the West Coast is superior to the East Coast. Actually, the the North is Lake Superior to the, everything, but it doesn't actually matter. Um, the just want to make sure I get it right here. There's uh, not a cheap watch. It's just under three thousand dollars, but it's so pretty, and I'd gladly sport one since I couldn't get one of the John Mayer collab uh, Casios, and that's my that's how I feel about it. So that's that's the gear on our radar right now. That's from today in gear over the past few days, the today's in gear, today in gears. Up to you how to say it. But um that is it for the episode. If you want to never miss uh today in gear installment, make sure you sign up for our newsletter. Um or just check the website every day and you will never be disappointed. And for any other info- information on uh anything we discussed in today's episode. Uh, check out the links to everything in the show notes, including gift guides for those of you who are still shopping around. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's the holidays after all. Uh, and find us on social media. Gear Patrol, one word, is our handle everywhere. And you can email us at podcast at gearpatrol.com. Henry and JD, thanks for all your insights and opinions and great jokes. I always appreciate them. Thank of course. You, Nick. Yeah. We'll see you uh, next time. Reminder to everybody, we're not going to be here next week. So you've got two weeks to listen to this episode or re-listen to it, which I bet you will do with your family on Christmas morning. Uh, and listeners, we'll be back with a final 2021 podcast episode on Friday, December 31st getting it in at the last minute so for now this is the gear patrol podcast i'm nick caruso and until then take care <laughs>